0: Hey Alarmy, before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad free, as well as our aftermath post interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month, producer Amanda Lund discusses the 2020 pot pie disaster. I am so honored to be sitting (laughs) in the Alarmist's throne Mm -hmm. right now.
1: (laughs) It suits you. How does it feel?
0: I mean, I'm not going to want to get out. You're going to have to have Uh-oh. security come and and get me out of here because I might just start popping up on all the episodes well there's i mean there's a time limit you have a 45 minute time limit on this throne so really yeah so it's really up to you what you make of yeah it.
1: then you pop out like in it, there's like a spring-loaded mechanism mm-hmm. that shoots you <laughs> up into the air yeah we your, took uh precautions your head goes through the, the ceiling it
0: goes through the roof but don't worry there's a trampoline to catch you on the other side <gasps> oh my safety god first.
1: safety first yeah. What do you think? What do you think we've been spending all the money in the budget since you've left the show on?
0: This is what you're using your Patreon funds for. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Go to Patreon.com/slash/TheAlarmist and subscribe today. Now on to our episode. Each week we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy, and each week you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and this is the aftermath. The aftermath. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert, Dr. Zeb Larson. Zeb is a writer and historian. His research focuses on the anti-apartheid movement and his work has been published in Teen Vogue, LA Times and the Washington Post. Let's hear what he has to say about apartheid and the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela. Hi Zeb, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So there's a lot that we have to cover, but I I feel like context is so important. So I'm asking you to pretty much do the impossible. Can you start off by giving us a a brief overview of South Africa's pre-colonial and then colonial history?
1: Yeah, you've asked me to do the impossible, but (laughs) I am going to rise to the challenge at least as best I can. So... Uh, South Africa, uh, for those who aren't familiar, uh, country obviously at the tip of the African continent, Um, pre-colonial South Africa sees movement of a variety of groups in and out. And some of that movement out is also because of um, environmental fluctuation, actually. But you see uh, beginning, I think, uh, around the second century B.C., uh, members of what would be called the Bantu group start to migrate in. By uh, the 13th century, the 14th century, you see the Sutu Swana people start to migrate into the region uh, shortly after they're followed by the Xhosa. Uh, and it's the, the movement in and out of these of these groups, in and out, sort of sets the stage for pre-colonial history. There's also a number of groups that are, as far as we can tell, sort of always indigenous to the region. Um, the Khoi, the San, they're, they've sort of lumped together as the Khoisan people today. Colonial South African history begins... Uh, with the arrival of the Dutch in 1652 to the Cape of Good Hope. Why do they stop at the Cape of Good Hope? It's a good watering station and sort of rest stop in between a long trip from Europe over to the Dutch East Indies. Um, It's a good place to get some crops so your sailors don't die of scurvy, which was a chief cause of death for anybody who had the misfortune to be on a ship in that era. So... A small colony grows up there uh, after some brief conflict with the Khorasan, who they're mostly able to conquer fairly quickly, uh, then it starts to become a thriving settlement. In 1806, I think it is when uh, it it sort of becomes uh, independent, mostly because the British take it over. Uh, They take over from the Dutch in the course of the Napoleonic Wars. And then we really enter a, a long period of South African colonial history. It's followed by successive settlements, but I like we might get into that in a little bit.
0: Yeah. So h- how does the discovery of gold and the abolishment of slavery around the same time in the mid-1800s shift political policy?
1: Now, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so the discovery... The abolishment of slavery comes because of the British. The British take over, and as I said, in the early 19th century, um, and b- by the 1830s, the British are determined to, fl- to phase out slavery through an apprenticeship system throughout their colonies. South Africa, which is really just the Cape, and Natal, which is a colony on the sort of Eastern Indian Ocean coast. It's mostly British. It's the only really majority British colony in South Africa. Uh, slavery was already out there. They start to, ex- to exit out in the Cape. And this angers a number of um, the Dutch settlers who are there, who by now are known as Boers, And Boer just means farmer um, mm-hmm. in the sort of Dutch Afrikaans parlance. And a number of them start to move outside in what becomes known as the Great Trek. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it, it becomes this sort of icon of South African nationalist white historiography of like everybody piling into their wagons and heading north and also getting into a couple of wars with the Kosa people so that they can take their land. Um, but what ends up happening is you get two independent uh, Boer republics that start up in the north, uh, the Orange Free State and the Transvaal Republic. Now, they're very poor which is why the British don't really pay them a whole lot of mind. They're they're agricultural. They're mostly uh, sort of dependent on pastoral uh, cattle raising until gold comes into the picture, at which point you suddenly have a very valuable natural resource, which brings British interest in. And that is where you set... This coincides in the 1870s with also a greater period of European colonization throughout Africa. And this is going to bring these two groups into conflict with each other.
0: What were pass laws and who did they target?
1: So pass laws come in a little bit later. The first pass law legislation is, is passed in 1923. And pass laws are aimed at black South Africans simply to control their movement as much as possible. And this actually gets at sort of a key tension that exists throughout South African history: labor, in that you have a large number of Of Black South Africans relative to the white South African population. I don't think uh, white South Africans ever make up more than a quarter of South Africa's population. Today, they're probably nine to 11%, if I'm speaking off the cuff. So what what white South Africans really want access to is labor. If you're a large farmer, you want lots of agricultural laborers. If you're working in a mine, you want lots of people working in your mine pass laws become a key mechanism by which people's movement can be controlled you know somebody has to have a pass to be somewhere that pass has to come from an employer who's always a white person that allows you to really have a stable control over your labor population which this is going to be a long running tension throughout south african history
0: hmm. now what was the boer war uh, and and who was fighting who and and, and for what what for
1: So this comes back to gold and those independent republics, and there are actually two Boer wars. The first is really brief. It starts in 1880, and it has to do with the shortest version, British encroachment over these independent Boer republics. They want greater say-so and annexation, uh, really control over their political affairs, and the Boers resist. And what the British quickly find out is that whatever else is true of the Boers, they're really good at guerrilla warfare and they're really good shots. They the British get their noses bloodied in a few battles very quickly and just decide it's not really worth pushing. The issue too hard so what they settle for is a kind of uh, limited sovereignty over them. The Boer republics will be independent, they have control over their own internal politics, Britain runs their foreign policy. Okay, well, fast forward 17 years. Again, the British want greater control over these republics. At this point, it's not just gold, but also diamonds. And uh, they have, frankly, a great deal of money pouring into and out of them because of these gold and diamond mines. The second Boer War starts, and again, the British do very badly at first. They're defeated conspicuously, um, but this time they don't give up. They push the issue, and it turns into a three-year conflict that ends only when the British basically enact scorched earth tactics, herding people into what become known as concentration camps, um, burning down people's farms to try to cut off access to any kind of food or independent supply. And that it leads to the creation of what we would call the Union of South Africa. It comes together a few years after that, but all four colonies, the Cape, Natal, the Orange Free State, and the Transvaal are all now under full British control.
0: So it, post-Boer War, at the turn of the century in the early 1900s, what what is the political state of South Africa? Who's in power? Mm. What political party has control of the majority of the government? And what do they stand for? It's
1: a great question. So by 1910, 1910- the Union of South Africa takes shape. It, it joins these four colonies together um, that had previously been you know, disparate or completely independent from each other. And the, the party that comes into power is what becomes known as sort of the United Party. And it's led by, by Boers or Afrikaners, but those who were seeking some kind of reconciliation with Great Britain, they tended to be better off. And this is a political arrangement that really favors the British, um, which works well for the British. That doesn't necessarily work as well for uh, Boers in South Africa. And this excuses nothing of what what is about to come in South African history. But I think I recall seeing a statistic that on average per capita income for um, Boer farmers or just anybody of Dutch descent in South Africa was something like half of what an English South African could expect. So there really was a greater degree of rural and urban poverty. So what happens is you have... a a division between sort of the better off and the worse off among whites and this will eventually boil over into what we and they will call apartheid but for the next 30 or so years it's under the control of a british leaning government first under louis botha who had fought the british but then come about to reconciliation and later under this guy jan smuts who if you study history is sort of everywhere in the 20th century he's at the He's at the Versailles conference in 1919. He helps found the United Nations. He just kind of keeps showing up until he's voted out of power in 1948.
0: Hmm. So it's 1918, around this time. It's when Nelson Mandela is born. Actually, literally 1918. Um, Can you give us some background on what his early life was like?
1: happily. So Mandela's part of what's called the Kosa group in South Africa, and he's actually born into a very privileged position. He's, and I'm going to betray my own ignorance here, I've never understood all the ins and outs of sort of the Kosa monarchy and noble system, but he is, in effect, the child of a monarch. Um, so his early childhood is relatively privileged. By this point, monarchs had been completely subordinated to, to British control, So their power is symbolic. Nevertheless, he enjoys a very comfortable life, grows up going to mission schools. He goes to a Methodist school, actually, which that sort of shapes him early on. Strong commitment to Christianity and a certain fondness for uh, the, the better angels of the British Empire or at least sort of British parliamentary democracy. And then as a young person, he starts by going to the University of Fort Hare. It's this really important university in southern Africa that really like all these guys attended, not just Mandela, but other members of the African National Congress or the guy who was the president of Zimbabwe from 1980 until his death. He went to Fort Hare. That's Robert Mugabe. And it's there that you start to see more of his views come into place, though he's not yet political. That doesn't come until he moves to Johannesburg in the early 1940s.
0: And and why and why does he then start to show an interest in politics in Johannesburg?
1: It is. Well, so it, what happens in, the, in South African cities during World War II is really transformational for a few reasons, because you have a tension that suddenly emerges with those past laws. There's a great deal of union militancy because South African war industries and South Africa's fighting uh, all really need labor of some kind, which the biggest labor pool is, of course, Black South Africans, they're the ones who are going to be coming into these industries, but they also, for the first time, have a degree of leverage that they've never really enjoyed. And is able to see that along with the sort of backlash to it because conservative white South Africans are not willing to countenance such a thing. Why would they? It means the loss at some level of all the power that they enjoy. So he becomes involved there with the African National Congress's Youth League, and that's really the beginning of his entrance into politics. He's also studying law while well, he's there. He's the University of Vit-Vatersrand's only, I think, Black law student at the time. And he does eventually become a lawyer, though. By that point, he's also so politically engaged, he kind of plays second fiddle.
0: Hmm. Forgive my ignorance. Um, I'm, I'm trying to understand the pass laws. And when you say pass laws, it means that Black citizens could not enter certain areas of the city without paperwork.
1: Correct.
0: And why, aside of the obvious lack of freedom to go about their own city, how are the, the white South Africans benefiting from these laws?
1: Well, there's the control over labor, which again, that benefits wealthier South Africans too. It also, it it ensures a degree of sort of competition over who gets what jobs. And this is again, going to become a cornerstone of apartheid. It's a little bit more informal in this period, but you always want to guarantee that the the best jobs go to white people, even in manual capacities, mine workers, for example, not all mine workers do the same jobs. Whites want the best mine jobs, the least dangerous ones, the best paying ones. Past laws are sort of another way to sort of ensure that like people can only be hired for certain jobs. An employer has to go to the length of, you know, hiring somebody. And here I know very little about mining history, but um, this makes sure that, that that reserves the best job system for whites, which, again, the war years kind of start to threaten because there's just that insatiable demand for we need people working whites start to become kind of nervous about what their long-term economic future is going to look like.
0: I see. Thank you. Yes, that's very clear. Um, So when did the African National Congress start and what was its mission? How slash when does Mandela get involved in the party?
1: So it starts in 1912 and it starts out really as a very moderate organization, Um, in part because it's founded by people who are Black South Africans who are closer to the middle class, who occupy sort of a more privileged position, so their demands are fundamentally uh, less radical, they're less revolutionary, Uh, sort of their preferred technique, signing petitions, protesting laws that were being passed that would restrict the rights of Black South Africans, sending delegations to sort of protest them. But these really weren't militant tactics at all. And so the ANC doesn't, I don't know that it does a whole lot in the first 30 years of its life, except act as a way to sort of organize people. And what happens is its youth league, beginning, beginning in 1943, starts to push back against this. It's, it's organized sort of begrudgingly. Mandela becomes a part of it, along with a number of other people who really shape the ANC in the coming decades. And they're much more interested in radical action. You know, here they're sort of looking at Gandhi because everybody is kind of looking at Gandhi. Gandhi spends time in South Africa, so he's just somebody who's very familiar at that level. And what they're thinking more in terms of initially is um, not actually multiracial democracy. They're really just thinking in terms of Black liberation. Multiracialism comes later from Mandela, starting in the early 50s. He he starts to move towards uh, multiracial coalitions to end apartheid. But initially, it's about trying to see... Uh, black political power in
0: 1948 apartheid laws are put into place how were they different from the oppressive laws that had already been put in place by uh and, and and were already a part of black south africans daily life how how does the how does the situation worsen at this point
1: that's a great question i'm glad you asked that because it is sort of really critical to understanding this um it's true that so many apartheid laws have their roots earlier. So I think it was in 1913, what's called the Natives Land Act is passed in South Africa, which restricts who can own land. Uh, and what the end result of it is, is something like 8% of South Africa can be owned by Black South Africans. The remainder is all goes to whites in the... 1930s they very generously allowed it to be 13% instead wow. of 8%. But again, you can sort of see like okay, there's that commitment to white's own everything. What they where where apartheid I think marks a break is that they're not just thinking now in terms of how do we how do we maintain economic or social distinctions, but they're actually looking towards a long-term future in which black south africans will be completely separate at every stage of life along with what's called colored South Africans, who are people of mixed-race descent, and Indian South Africans, they will be kept completely separate. The long-term goal for Black South Africans that's never fully realized but is realized in part is what's called the creation of the Bantu stands. Every Black South African, in theory, would have been given their own separate citizenship as a member of an ethnic group, Kosa, Zulu, Sutu, Swana, so on and so forth, their blacks, their, their South African citizenship would be ended, and they would be forcibly moved into these very small countries called Bantustans that would be theoretically independent, in in practice, never meaningfully so. And what would have looked a lot actually like, well, frankly, Native American reservations in the United States. Uh, it would have just been hurting as many people as possible into there. And then the only circumstance by which they can leave is if they have a pass to come and stay in a hostel and work in a mine or a factory or whatever else. Wow.
0: how does the anti-apartheid movement begin to grow and gain traction at this point? How does Mandela participate in, in this movement as well?
1: So he comes onto the ANC's executive committee, I think in 1950, he's been sort of moving up the ranks of the party and where they get started. Um, because it's not an immediate thing, it does take time to build up to, but what's launched in 1951 is called the Defiance Campaign. And here, if you were studying sort of American civil rights history, it would be really similar, it would definitely feel kind of the same thing. What they're launching are boycotts of businesses, they're launching stay away campaigns, they're launching strikes and protests, in a sort of much more militant way, which leads to thousands of arrests, and Mandela's arrested in the course of the defiance campaign, he's arrested later in the 1950s. It's kind of a theme. He keeps getting arrested and he keeps just defying it and actually managing to beat it in court in various ways. Um, and that's how they try to oppose it is really through nonviolence. Though, as the 1950s wear on, Mandela sort of becomes increasingly aware that the government is simply not responding to nonviolent protest, even economic protest. And his mind sort of starts to accept this idea that some kind of violence, even if it's just economic sabotage, is going to be necessary because they're not being left any other tools to resist with.
0: In the 50s, in, in, in our research, we, we found that in the 50s, Mandela is labeled a communist. And it, it's because of this label that he's deemed, a quote, unquote, banned individual. Under South African law, who could be labeled a communist and what were the consequences that they would have with the law? How How is this able label used to favor the white majority run government's stronghold?
1: That's a great question. There's actually been some really great research I've read from somebody else. I, I wish it was mine, but I can't take credit for this <laughs> one um, that. uh the The South African government is actually really looking at McCarthyism in the United States as a sort of blueprint for, uh, this is how we can restrain political discourse. And what that culminates in is in 1951, I think it's the, I think it's 1951, there's the Suppression of Communism Act. And communism here is defined really as any attempt to protest at government policies, which could result in racial hatred, I'm paraphrasing here, or that would sort of change the economic and social status quo in South Africa, I, you probably can put together that's so impossibly broad that virtually everybody is a communist. Yeah. <laughs> the government says you're a communist. So that's, that's how they go at that. And they target people with imprisonment or what's called banning. Banning is this sort of South African punishment. I, I, it always feels very distinct to me in which people would have to report. It's sort of like the most intense house arrest you could possibly imagine. Like you're not allowed to meet with more than one other person at the same time. You have to report consistently to police stations. Frequently, they would send you to like the middle of nowhere. So you'd also be cut off from, you know, any political links that you had ever had. And that's how they try to, and not without success, restrict the growth of the anti-apartheid movement.
0: Wow. What is... um. Is there some kind of international effect uh, after Mandela Mandela is is labeled a communist?
1: Not so much over Mandela because he's, he's still a relatively new figure at this point. But, you know, as early, in fact, this even predates apartheid. In 1945 and 1946, the UN is formed. And one of the first issues before the UN is the fate of this colony from World War I called Southwest Africa. Today, it's Namibia. South Africa had been given uh, the responsibility of overseeing Southwest (laughs) Africa, which sounds very benign. Of course, it's not. Uh, And in 1945, they basically make the case that we would really like to just annex Southwest Africa, make it the fifth province of South Africa. It should be ours. And this, it doesn't happen. Actually, it's because a a sort of unique coalition of people sort of British clergymen and the NAACP in the United States and of course lots of people in Southwest Africa and South Africa come together to oppose this. The practical effect is that they stop legal annexation. South Africa continues to occupy Namibia until 1990. But so I I offer this. People are always, always sort of aware how terrible South Africa's policies are. And even before apartheid comes in, there's a movement in place to try to restrict sort of its worst impulses. And that grows as apartheid strengthens, really, in this period. Mandela's, well, we're te- we're getting ahead of ourselves, but Mandela's eventual arrest is sort of a galvanizing force there, but also just the odiousness of this system in which white supremacy is literally a part of the Constitution. It, it turns international opinion against South Africa.
0: What, what was the Sharpeville massacre? And... Mm. How, how do tensions escalate even more
1: after it? So the Sharpeville massacre—it it's a protest over past laws, and it actually comes about because a splinter group off of the African National Congress is formed called the Pan Africanist Congress. And the Pan Africanist Congress—it's enough to just know that their commitment is not towards multiracial democracy, but they explicitly want a sort of Uh, Black South African state. They don't make alliances with other political parties like the Indian National Congress. They lead a protest in this township called Sharpville. Uh, South African authorities allege that the protest became violent. There's no real evidence that that ever happened. And in response, they open fire and kill, I think, 69 people. Hundreds more are wounded in the course of this. This has a few effects. For one, internationally, it's a disaster for South Africa. It leads to a very brief economic crisis because people start to think maybe they shouldn't be investing there. Ultimately, they go back because capitalism and money. But, <laughs> uh, and then within South Africa, it sets off a three-year period of turmoil. Uh, at this point, Mandela more or less commits to some kind of violent struggle to end apartheid, just sort of accepting that the system is not going to be taken down any other way. And the ANC and all these other groups are formally banned, which places them in in illegal status. So what happens is some people flee abroad to try to continue the struggle from neighboring countries, Tanzania, Zambia. Others try to stay underground to try to lead a sabotage campaign against the government.
0: Is is this the time where Mandela also goes under underground and he's yes. um, okay? So. In 1962, after he goes underground, uh, he's arrested. And yes. that this, of course, ends his time as a fugitive. Some sources say that the arrest was due to a tip from the CIA. What was the United States position on apartheid and the South African government at the time? And why would they want to help capture Mandela? That's
1: a, that's a great question. And so the the... That allegation has really been strengthened, I think, starting in 2016, because this former vice consul for the U.S. embassy or U.S. consulate in Durban, which is this major South African city, alleged that he had given sort of the tip that Mandela was in the area, and that was what ultimately got him arrested. Why the United States would care? The United States is in a very awkward position with South Africa. It's going through its own civil rights movement, so it's it's trying to, you know, present to the rest of the world that it's not racist, um, which is in and of itself very difficult in this period for reasons beyond this specific talk. But South Africa is also a very reliable partner in the Cold War. It is militantly anti-communist if nothing else it occupies a vital position in indian ocean shipping so it it has this sort of strategic position of course it also has large strategic reserves of very important minerals that are you know debated but ultimately everybody agrees they're at least sort of important to the world economy and then there's also sort of a hope that, you know, South Africa can be sort of a regional guarantor of st- stability. It will fight other communists because it has an incentive to do so, which it will. It will eventually launch wars in Angola and Mozambique and Namibia to try to maintain control and it will be fighting communist guerrillas. So that is the this, this source of sort of US interest. And why Mandela? Uh, I, I think it was Donald Rickard, who's the guy who tips off Mandela's location just said that he thought Mandela was a very dangerous communist terrorist and would need to be done away with in some way. Hmm.
0: What le- what led Mandela to be prosecuted during um, his most famous uh, of, of his many trials, <laughs> as, as you <laughs> mentioned, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, the, the Rivonia trial? Um, what, what were the charges that were put in place and, and, and why did Mandela try to how I'm sorry, how did he try to defend himself?
1: That's a good question. So he's charged with sabotage and attempting to violently overthrow the government. So treason. And he makes no bones. He actually more or less admits that, yeah, he's trying to engage in sabotage. That sort of recognizing that at this point, even though he's been very good uh, at fighting against other legal charges at this point, like he really doesn't have much of a defense left. So instead he and his fellow defendants turn it into sort of a political opportunity to make their case as to what they want. Which leads to this very powerful speech he gives. It's something like three hours long. The I am prepared to die speech in which he states that his goal is a multiracial South African state where everybody will be equal with each other and that he would very much like to live in that South Africa, but ultimately he will die to try to see it realized and For a variety of reasons, somehow, between perhaps the weight of that speech and whatever else, or a determination to not make him into a martyr, he does not get the death penalty. He and his fellow defendants are instead sentenced to life in prison, which begins his 27-year-plus journey into the South African prison system.
0: And what are these these years like for him? What is his time in prison like? How, How is he able to stay active politically?
1: So it it varies and it's very difficult. Um, mm. He's initially he's imprisoned on Robin Island, which is like a, a, a distance away from Cape Town. It's a very small island. There's a lime quarry, which the only reason that's there is just to put the prisoners to hard labor. Um, and initially, he's initially he's both tightly controlled and also kind of forgotten in a sense. And that's because by 1964, the ANC has been so thoroughly beaten by the South African government that there's just no resistance left. Everybody has either fled, is in prison, or is so far underground that they can't do anything. So Mandela's first few years, they're quiet. He gets one letter every six months. He receives no visitors. Uh, that that weakens over time. Um, and he and the, his fellow prisoners who are held there try to continue on with political education, He actually, I think, works on an LLB from the University of London, but it happens and fits and starts and he gets in trouble because he's trying to write his memoirs. And that's how he spends the first 18 years of it. Then after that, he's moved to what's called Polesmoor Prison, where he has a little bit more contact with uh, both his family, but also members of the ANC. The ANC by the early 80s has revived in many ways. And he starts to play a greater sort of role not a leadership position, but very much becomes a symbol of opposition to apartheid and a figurehead figure, figurehead figure, whatever redundancy, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So, so when is he finally released, uh, from prison and, and how is this release made possible?
1: He's released in 1990. Um, and his release is made possible by a variety of things. Um, it's, economic downturn in South Africa by the 1980s, it's so economically sort of isolated because of activist campaigns that it's it's going through an outright recession where the economy is shrinking. It's going through violent unrest at home because people are simply sort of rising up and being arrested and massed to protest apartheid laws. It's various wars in Angola and in Namibia aren't going well. So there's a sort of fear that you know this conflict might come home. And then in 1990, well, 1989, um, F.W. de Klerk comes to power in South Africa. De Klerk is not a racial liberal. In fact, uh, Desmond Tutu explicitly says that him coming to power, he said it at the time, this was musical chairs, it's meaningless. This guy has always been an apartheid supporter. Nothing is going to change. And de Klerk very much is a conservative, but he also sort of sees the writing on the wall. Uh, what he's really afraid of is that it, this war will just continue and... Completely break South Africa, and he also sees. I think interestingly, the Cold War is ending. South Africans had always been afraid. What if the Communist Party comes to power? What if the Soviet Union decides to become more involved? But in 1989 and 1990, that wasn't going to happen anymore. So De Klerk suddenly sees that maybe maybe negotiations with the ANC don't have to be quite as threatening because the Communists just aren't going to wield nearly as much power as they might have in his mind otherwise. Mandela's been the face of this campaign to release him from prison for years, and he's sort of offered this concession along with everybody else, wholesale, unconditional release from prison. He doesn't have to renounce his political activities. So he and a number of others are freed in February of
0: 1990. Hmm. It's interesting to learn that side of of de Klerk. I mean, I, I can't believe that he would win the Nobel Prize along with Mandela. In 93. it was in ninety three or ninety four. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean,
1: it's it's a real curiosity. He's not, and, and yet he's he's not a hero. He's not a hero in the sense. That, oh, he'd been fighting apartheid all this time. He'd been a very loyal functionary, but he does do what a lot of other white South Africans won't in that moment, which is concede. Yeah, and there mm-hmm. were plenty of white South Africans who were very much determined to keep fighting into the nineteen nineties and beyond. It it's not sort of beyond the realm of possibility that. It could have bro- it could have boiled over into a full-scale civil war at some point. Declare does get some credit for heading that off.
0: So we ask all of our guest experts this question, mm. um, and it's not an easy one, but uh, at the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela. Who or what would that be?
1: Settler colonialism. You know, just, just tossing out the biggest concept that we can, right? <laughs> yeah, super simple. I say that because, like, there are all these figures in South African history. You know, the guy who's prime minister when he's when he's finally caught and taken to prison. I mean, Hendrik Verwoerd was an architect of apartheid. I mean, sort of really at an intellectual level, really brainstormed a lot of it. But Verwoerd's a product of a system. You know, if somebody else had been prime minister, the same thing would have happened. Donald Rickard handing... Uh, Mandela over, yeah, he definitely aids his specific capture. But regardless, the CIA would still have been opposed to Mandela in a sort of more plausible universe. Uh, it really it it would take a system like South African apartheid and what preceded it, because it didn't come out of nowhere, to imprison Mandela, and that's ultimately what's at fault.
0: Zeb, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and helping us understand this. Uh complex, difficult, terrible history.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash The Alarmist. And stay tuned because next week we'll be discussing The Death of Jane Mansfield.